As Jesse said, my name is Corey. I just retired, well, just in 2019. That's the presence of the Lord in our midst. And um, so I was in ministry for 42 years, really at the same church. And then uh, uh, retired, and I've been retired, but the Lord grants me opportunities like coming to the great state of Texas. I sound like a politician, huh? And uh, I've had a wonderful time here. Let me begin by congratulating you. Seven years of existence. Now let me tell you a little secret that pastors know. It takes a pastor, and in particular uh, a church plant, a new church, about seven years to hit their stride. Seven years to mark. Most pastors do not survive four years. The average length of a stay of a pastor in a church is four years. And they never hit the seven-year watermark. Because when you're there for seven years, and this also applies to a church plant, if you're in existence for at least seven years, after the seventh year, something happens. The Lord anoints you even maybe a little bit more than normal, but churches and pastors hit their stride. And I've always taught the guys that I've I've mentored is that pastors, after that seventh year, when they reach the tenth year, that's when they really begin to understand fully what God wants them to do in the church. And you're three years from that. Now, it's not that precise, but it's about seven years. So congratulations to you that you have been in existence for seven years. God has blessed you for those years, and you have much more to come. And that's why celebration is of the seventh year is even more important than maybe some of the other years. And I bless that the guys that left Southern California and are now here have been in ministry for seven years. So they've been here three years longer than the average pastor stays in their church. So congratulations. Now in the midst of the celebration, there's also an opportunity to offer you condolences for what transpired in your community. There's a personal side to the tragedy, And the people, we need to pray for the people who are directly affected by by the shootings. But there's also a community impact and effect. We had a mass shooting in the the neighborhood that I live in during Chinese New Year's. And I think it hit the front pages and everything. And it really impacted our community, the local community. And it wasn't right for, for weeks and even months. And maybe for some, even till today. So... You know, and the reason why things like this happen is because sin abounds. As a pastor, we see more and more situations occur in the life of our members and in our community that, that just reek of the sinfulness of society. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul wrote this. He said, Therefore, be wise how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And they will become more evil the closer we get to the return of Jesus. Now there is sin, and then there is evil. Not quite the same word. And I think we all know that evil seems to be escalating in our society as our society becomes more godless. But the Bible says here, in the midst of the days that are evil, we can redeem the time or make the most of the time. So in the midst of a tragedy like this, 
We are still called upon by God in the days that are evil to make the most of the time. To make the most of the time. Is there a remedy for something that transpired yesterday? I think there is. And it's not more legislation or gun laws. It's not more mental health resources, although that's wonderful. It, it's, it's what it, I think the, maybe the key or re, the remedy for this is really evangelism. Now, I think in times like this, people go back to church because they sense their own mortality and the mortality of their loved ones. And so I think one of the keys is for people to come to know Jesus. And if we had a society filled with people who knew and loved Jesus, we wouldn't have mass shootings. But the days are evil because people are turning away from God rather than toward God. And and the result is just is absolutely understandable and predictable as the days grow evil. And I think in days like this we may be even more sensitive to those who are of our loved ones who don't know Jesus. I mean it crossed my mind to go to that that mall. You know, because you're looking at things to do in the area, and it's right across the roadway of where I'm staying, the, the expressway. Right? And so you may have loved ones that went to that particular outlet yesterday and maybe just missed the shooting by moments or minutes or maybe hours. And you wonder, but they don't know Jesus. And maybe it gives you an inspiration to share Christ with them. And so what I'm going to be doing today is, is, is giving a message on evangelism. That's one of the ways churches grow and the kingdom expand. Now I'm going to begin by showing you some family photos. Right? Bear with me. You know, I love these family photos. Uh, you don't know my family, so they're just going to be pictures of people, but there's a there's a purpose for it. Now here's our the first picture is a picture of our entire clan of 21 people. We have three daughters. My wife and I have been married 53 years. Right? So this is our uh so we just turned well, I turned 75, and this was taken on my 75th birthday, or the 75th birthday celebration. We took a family picture. It was my wife's idea, not mine, right? So my wife is in the middle with me, and it features uh, 13, our three daughters, their husbands, and our 13 grandkids. Now, here's a picture of Rain and I with our 13 grandkids. The youngest is a adopted the two youngest are adopted foster children. And they're there, they're Hispanic, and they're part of our forever family now. And then we have the other youngest at seven, all the way up to our granddaughter that is 23. So that's the span. 13 grandkids. Now, why do I show you these two pictures on your seventh anniversary? Hey, I just wanted to show you the pictures. No, these two pictures represent Two Bible verses that I really love. Here's the first one. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And I feel blessed. Three daughters and then grandchildren. Now the second verse is this. Proverbs 17.6 says, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged. And any of you who have grandchildren know that as special as your children were, grandchildren are even more special in a different way. They are the crown of people who are growing old. 
Now, in 2003, Evergreen SGV, the church that I pastored, gave birth to our third daughter church, Lighthouse Community Church, which, which was just mentioned, which Jenshi mentioned. The children, remember, children are a gift of the Lord. And our quiver as a church began to fill. That was our third plant. So it was our daughter church, Lighthouse. Then in, on May 1st, 2016, Lighthouse gave birth to their daughter church, Zoe Community Church, located here in Allen, Texas. It was our, Evergreen's, second grandchild. And our quiver of grandchildren began to fill. Here's one more picture. This is a picture of my wife. The middle child is Avery, who is now seven, but this was her first, fifth birthday party with the two uh, with her two cousins, the two little girls who were adopted. They had a little tea party. All right. I wasn't there, but I don't do tea parties. Right. Yeah. I, actually, I was tied up. Now, there is nothing better than going to your grandchildren's birthday party. Right, grandparents? It's so much fun because you don't have to do all the, any of the work. You just show up and eat the cake and ice cream. By the way, let me, let me, um, and today, is the birthday of one of my spiritual grandchildren. That's you. Nothing better than being at a birthday party of your grandchild. In this case, spiritual grandchild. Now let me make a comment here. God actually has no grandchildren. He only has children. So just because you come to church and are a child of God, doesn't mean that just because you bring your children, they are also going to be the grandchildren of God. Because God has no grandchildren, only children. And so you need to encourage your children and your grandchildren to come to know Jesus. But people say, you know, it's really, really hard to evangelize your family. I don't think it really is. And I'm going to share with you why. And you take these principles, which I'm going to share with you from the Scriptures, and apply it to the general population, they still work. But it especially is, is viable and works with your own family. And after what transpired at the outlets, you may be thinking about the salvation of your family and how you're going to evangelize them or share the good news of Jesus. That's simply what evangelism is. You're going to share the good news, the good news that you have embraced with Jesus Christ. All right, the first reason why you are equipped to share your faith, to dare to share your faith, is because we have the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit. In John 16, verses uh, 5 and 4, it says, And now I am going to him, this is Jesus speaking, who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for I do not go, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is the Holy Spirit. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the rule of this world has been judged. You see, it's the responsibility of the Holy Spirit to convict a person of their sinfulness 
of Jesus' righteousness and the need to receive Christ before judgment. It's not our responsibility. It is the responsibility of the Holy Spirit. We are merely vessels for the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says this, But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ or to him. So if you've confessed your faith in in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit within you. And it is the Holy Spirit's responsibility to convict a person of their sinfulness, to convince your loved one of the righteousness that is found through Christ. One, One of my uncles... Uncle Joe, he was like a second dad to me. His name was Joe. And Uncle Joe contracted hepatitis. Hepatitis C. They said it was a combination of C and B. So I would witness to him. In fact, I'd been witnessing to him right along, and I even gave him a Bible. And as he his as he was suffering from hepatitis and, his, and the life within him was ebbing, he became extremely fearful of death. And that's very understandable, right? So much so that toward the end, he cried all the time. Whenever I visited him, whenever my dad, I remember my dad's brother, my other uncle visited him, Uncle Joe would just cry. And it made my dad and my uncle uncomfortable. So they sort of stopped visiting him in his final days. Well, I kept witnessing to them, him, and he just would cry through the entire time. I don't think he really heard what I was saying. But Uncle Joe kept having this dream, a recurring dream. He was walking along a bridge, he slipped, and he fell off the bridge and was clinging to the side of the bridge with all his might. And which makes sense because his background is Buddhist and they talk about a bridge that you cross. So um, he said, but and he recognized that there was somebody reaching out for him. And he couldn't see the face of the person. And then he'd wake up. And he had this recurring dream. Well, I fasted and I prayed for my uncle. I tried to witness to him. He eventually slipped into a coma. And they said he's probably not going to come out of the coma. And I was grief-stricken because he hadn't received Jesus yet, to the best of my knowledge. Well, one night about midnight, the hospital calls me up. And they say, your uncle wants to see you. He came out of his coma. So I just threw on some clothes. After midnight, I went to the hospital. Because I'm a pastor, they let you in at all hours. So I went up to my uncle, and we started to talk. And I said to him, you know, uncle, you know that dream you've been having? You know who's reaching out to you? It's Jesus. And he knew who Jesus was. We've been witnessing to him. And Jesus is reaching his hand out to you, and he wants you to grab his hand, and he was going to pull you up right into the kingdom of heaven. So when you die, you'll be in his presence for all eternity, in a mansion that has been created for you. That night, my uncle confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord. I, I did, I'm a Baptist, right? There's no tub of water there, so I took a cup and I sprinkled him. Touched his forehead. The water doesn't save you, right? It's your confession of faith. 
So he was, he confessed his faith. I baptized him in the hospital room. And the next day, as people visited him, he did not shed a tear. In fact, when my dad and my uncle came to visit him, he witnessed to them and said, you know, you don't have to fear death if you know Jesus. This is my uncle who had no biblical training, really. Well, what happened? It was the power of the Holy Spirit giving my uncle a dream that the Spirit of God used to convict him of his sin, convince him of the righteousness of Christ, and the judgment that will go away once you receive him, convince him to become a Christian. Whenever you share faith with anyone, family or otherwise, you have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. And that Holy Spirit, he is going to do his work in the person to whom you are witnessing, to whom you are verbally articulating what the good news is all about. It happens. Just be faithful in the communication. For faith comes from hearing the word, it says in Romans. they got to hear it. Then he died a few days later, but I knew exactly where my uncle was in heaven. So we have the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's one. Secondly, we have the, the proof of a positive testimony. The proof of a positive testimony. What does that mean? Second Corinthians 2, Paul wrote this, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ, and manifests to us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are the fragrance of Christ to, who, to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We carry with us the aroma and fragrance of Jesus. This is basically our testimony. When Rain and I were dating, my wife and I were dating, I used Old Spice aftershave, and I chewed double mint gum. Got that? Uh, that's like Old Spice and double mint, right? So, and then after a while, I didn't do either one of the two after we were married. And, but anytime I used Old Spice thereafter and double mint, she said, that reminds me of you. That was the aroma she she uh, smelled when we were dating and as we were joined together in marriage. So I had an aroma or a fragrance associated with me that my wife knew. Old Spice and Double Mint. We have an aroma of Jesus in our lives, or at least we should. And that's the fragrance that our family and friends and co-workers should pick up. So that whenever they're around you, that's the aroma and fragrance that they sense. First Thessalonians 1.5 says, For our gospel did not come to you in, holy, in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. He said, we were a certain kind of person for your sake. So that you'll know who our Redeemer is. Testimony is powerful. Now, there's two kinds of testimony. There's a verbal testimony, and then there's a visual testimony. Verbal and visual. We went on a staff lunch one time, and one of our missionaries who wasn't Asian was a missionary in, um, one of our staff members was a missionary in China. 
So she said to us, you got to try stinky tofu. You know what stinky tofu is? You look it up, Google it, stinky tofu. And it smells terrible because it's fermented. And so we got it, and uh, the, vi- the verbal testimony was excellent. She said, this is really good stuff. She ate it in China all those years that she was a missionary's child. But the rest of the testimony, the visual and the olfactory testimony, was horrible. You have a verbal, where you pronounce the gospel, and you have a visual, where people smell the aroma of your life. And those two things need to match. And that's called integrity, where your public life is equal to your private life. So reputation is how other people view you, Character is who you really are. And it's the character that emanates the aroma and fragrance of Jesus. Where you have integrity between your verbal testimony and your visual testimony. This guy named, this guy named Joe, not my uncle Joe, okay, but another guy named Joe was miraculously saved at a rescue mission. I have preached at rescue missions before. It is the most Difficult venue to share the word of God because everyone is there for a meal. Right, 300 men, and they just, their eyes are just glazed over. Extremely difficult assignment from the Lord. Well, he was a, he just was a, a, an alcoholic, a dirty drunk in, in his own words. Then one night, he accepted Christ as a Savior and Lord, and Joe changed. He spent his nights and his days at the mission. He cleaned up. There's no task that was too lowly for Joe. If somebody got sick and upchucked, he cleaned it up. He was the one who cleaned up all the filthy and dirty toilets. If a, if a, a guy needed um, to be put to bed because they were, they were stone drunk, he would change their clothes for them, put on their pajamas, and tuck them into bed. If a guy wandered away from the mission, he would go seek them out. And he'd bring them back and care for them. He did every menial task within the mission with joy and love. So one night, the director of the mission was, was giving a message, an evangelistic message. And the men were glassed, most of the men had their eyes glassed over like my experience was. Except there was one man. And he took in the message of the gospel. And he came forward with tears in his eyes. And he said, God, make me like Joe. Make me like Joe. Please, God, make me like Joe. And the director of the mission looked down and said, Son, don't you mean make me like Jesus? And the guy looked up quizzically and said, Why, is he like Joe? The testimony of Joe eventually led this man to Jesus. Because every toilet that he cleaned, every drunk that he put to bed, every one of those things was part of the aroma of Christ through him. Make me like Joe, because Joe is like Jesus. Isn't that what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11? He said, be like me. Oh, what a audacious statement, Paul. But then he continues to say, because I am like Jesus. Paul tried to be like Jesus, so he, he encouraged people to be like him. Because Paul carried the aroma and fragrance of Christ 
to those around him. In practical sense, that's a story. It's a true story. Practically speaking, my wife and I went to go visit my brother's father. And we've been witnessing to them, devout Buddhists, for years. And he was on his deathbed. My wife and I visited, and this is one of those things that's the power of the Holy Spirit. He had a moment of lucidity and clarity while we were visiting him. So I took my brother and his wife downstairs because we were talking about end-of-life issues. They wanted to talk to me. And left my wife with my, with my uh, well, his name is Hank. Left my wife with Hank. And the idea was, I will take my brother and, and his wife down, it's her father, and my wife will witness one last time to Hank. We, we had, I was down for an hour in the cafeteria talking to my brother and his wife. We came up, we're walking the halls, and she said, well, maybe reigns a Buddhist now. I said, you know, don't be surprised if your dad is now a Christian. Right? So we walk into the room, and then my wife said to them, your dad just became a Christian. And she said, what? She said, what? And then they were okay about it. It's whatever the dad wanted at, on his deathbed, basically, was okay with them. And he confessed his faith in Jesus. But you know what he told my wife? She asked, well, why did you become a Christian? He said, because I've been watching your family for years now, and I like the way you live. The aroma of Christ permeated his soul to the point where he became a believer in Jesus. You have that power in your families. How will they come to know your Redeemer? Because you have a redeemed life. Making the most of the time for the days of evil, the Bible says. That's a powerful tool of evangelism. Living a Christ-like life in the presence of your family, your loved ones, and even at work. Thirdly, we have the power of God's Word. Isaiah 55, 11, this is a great verse, says, So my word, uh, be which goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. Hebrews 4, 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, and that any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirits. Does this happen often? But the Lord's really present, yes. Of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is power in the Word of God. Power in the Holy Spirit. Power in the Word of God. Enough power to penetrate a soul. The intentions of a soul and heart and mind. Like a two-edged or double-edged sword. So preach and teach the Word. It has power. Share the Word. One evening when I was a youth pastor, before I became the pastor of Evergreen, I was a youth pastor at a church. My cousin was going to. And we were at a family gathering not too far from the church. So she came home from a youth meeting. And then um, right when she came home, my cousin offered me a beer. And now everybody in the family knows, I knew I didn't drink. But he offered me a beer. I said, oh, no thanks, we're watching a football game. What's more American than that, right? Football game, drinking a beer. And I said, no, thank you. And so he asked me a question. How come you don't drink? And I said, I don't drink because of of what I believe in the Scriptures. But, you know, that's too long to go over here because we're watching a football game. How about if we have an eight-week 
family Bible study, and I'll explain to you why I don't drink, among other things. So we went around the family gathering, and we asked him, and almost every member of the family said, okay, sure, which really surprised me. So we gathered together. I think it was on a Wednesday night. We gathered together on Wednesday nights at my uncle's house, the one we were at, to study God's word, the Ishida clan. And my father and mother didn't come because they were working. They had, we had a store. So my uncle, who came to know Christ after the dream, that auntie, my mom and dad didn't come to the Bible study because of the family business. But all the rest of the family came there. That eight-week study turned into three years. We sang, we studied the scriptures, they asked questions, I did my best to answer them. And in those three years, every member of that side of the family, except my uncle, my auntie, my dad, and my mom, and my brother didn't come. My brother didn't come. And his wife, the ones whose whose father-in-law came to Christ. Every other member of our family came to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord through the Bible study. Because periodically through the Bible study, I would uh, ask whether or not any of them wanted to know Jesus. And eventually, all of them did. So that whole, my whole side of the family, except now my brother and his wife, they're all believers in Christ. My wife's maternal side, we were close to. And we gathered together. We, they, Some of them came to that Bible study as an extended family Bible study. They all came to Christ. And eventually, that whole side, except about three people, came to know Jesus. And then... Our nephew became a, a pastor. Uh, the, the guys know him. He's kind of an evangelist. So he held another Bible study, invited the non-believers from that side of the family to it, and they all came to Christ. Because they heard the word of God. And God's word never comes back to him empty. So recently, my son-in-law was... Um, was concerned about his dad. They're Taiwanese. My son-in-law is Taiwanese. Because his dad's was, health was, was starting to wane. And he, he was, they, they were going to go back to Taiwan to live six months out of the year. And he was worried about his dad because his dad didn't know Jesus yet. So he said, he asked me, is there anything you can do, dad? I'm his other dad, right? I said, sure. So I called up Thomas. And I said, Thomas, how about you and I getting together for some Bible study before you go back to Taiwan? And he said, Sure. It wasn't close to the idea. So I drove to Irvine from Alhambra, and that's like a 45-minute to an hour drive, once a week to have Bible study with Thomas. And I only had four Bible studies because he was going to Taiwan. On the, and so I went through what the gospel was, what, what sin was. I went through all the basics of the faith. And I said, Thomas, I'm going to get together with you, and you're leaving for China next week, so this will be our last meeting um, until you come back. But I'm going to ask you if you want to accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord. After four Bible studies, we studied the Scripture, we read through the Scriptures, we studied it together. The morning I was supposed to drive over, I go, oh, Lord, after four weeks, it took my family two to three years. So I drove out to Irvine, met the, sat there with, with Thomas. I went through a few Scriptures. You know, Thomas, I'm just going to ask you right now, you want to accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord? He goes, Yes. I said, no. you understand what I'm asking you? He goes, yes. And he said, you know what? Before you came over, I knew you were going to ask me this question. I went for a walk around the park that's right next door to him. Big loop. And he said, while I was walking in the park, 
God met me. And I knew Jesus was real. See, that's a combination of the Word of God and the power of, of whom? The Holy Spirit. And that, that morning, or he became a Christian. Confesses his, his uh, faith in Jesus. And nothing to do with me. Everything to do with what? The Word of God and the power of God's Holy Spirit. So we have the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have the proof of a positive testimony. And we have the power of the Word. Fourthly, we have the potential of meeting a person at their point of need. Meeting a person at their point of need. In John chapter 4, Jesus has this encounter with a woman at the well. You've probably heard this particular account several times. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one with whom uh, you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now, she was, wanted to talk theology. Like, what mountain do you worship at? I mean, what's the right mountain? What does he do? He turns your back into a conversation, which was the point of her need. This woman went to the well in the afternoon. That's where Jesus was. When everybody else went in the morning. Why did people go in the morning? Because it was cool. Why didn't she go there? Because she was ostracized for having so many husbands and living with somebody who wasn't her husband. That was her need. And that's where Jesus met her at her point of need. Sharing faith sometimes can happen in the midst of you meeting a need. You may know somebody who's been directly affected by the shootings. And they're in a time of need. And you might be able to meet them at their point of need by taking a meal over, by just being a listening ear. God may use you in some wonderful way with that life. My dad died in 1978, one year after I started at Evergreen. So he came to church for one year. It's interesting. He didn't go to church all his life. The moment I became a pastor and preached week to week, he came to church. He was getting ready to... um, he was getting ready to come to church when he died of a heart attack at age 61. My mom fell apart after my death of my dad. She was losing weight. I mean, she, she looked like she was at the doorstep of death. Some of you have experienced that with your parents. When your loved one, especially women, when the loved one dies, and they're a partner for all those years, decades. And they went through the war, down to the, to the, to the prisons together. It was a horrible experience at the front. That's where they met, by the way, at Manzanar, which was one of the prison, prison camps that they had for the Japanese-Americans during World War II. And my father from there went to uh, the military intelligence school, became an interpreter for the U.S. Army in the Pacific Theater, was part of the occupation forces. And while he was in Minneapolis, my mom joined him. That's where my sister was conceived. When he left for the military, they sent her back to the camp. It was like a, it wasn't a rich experience, but it made them better, not bitter, which is a whole different sermon. All right. Well, my mom was just withering away, and so we would she would come to our homes for a couple nights stay, rotating amongst the three kids, my brother and sister and I. She was at my house one day, and there was a meeting going on, a church meeting going on in our living room. So she came into my study and had a couch there, and I, and I put a little TV. 
for her. And so she started watching the series Quincy. Anybody know Quincy? She liked it because it was a Japanese-American co-star. She was watching it, and like, and I know what this is like now. When an elderly person is watching TV, eventually they doze off. So she just doze off. I'm doing that now. Anyway, dozing off. <laughs> so I turned to look at her. She was sitting in the chair. I had a, like a comfortable chair there. And an armchair there. And I saw her. And I was, this is just before Easter. And I was preparing messages on the seven last words of Jesus. So I looked at her. I looked back at my Bible. And my eyes got fixated on, behold your mother. One of Jesus' seven last words to John. Behold your mother. This has happened three times in my pastoral career of 42 years, where I either just opened the Bible and looked at a verse, or my eyes fell upon it, and I knew that was a word from God. Behold your mother. So I turned to my mom. She was, she was asleep on the couch. I beheld her. And what did, what did Jesus do from the cross? He entrusted her to John. I think that's the reason why John wasn't martyred. He lived a ripe old age. Why? He was taking care of Mary. So I went and touched my mom's hand. I said, Mom. And I talked to her about my dad's death and how she was just wasting no money. I said, you know, you really need Jesus. You need him because of what you're going through right now. You need a comforter. You need a savior. You need somebody to walk beside you, beside us kids. Mom, would you accept Jesus now? And she did. Because I addressed her with the gospel at her point of need. And right there and then, being a good Baptist, I baptized her with a little cup of water. What a blessed event that was. But when we we can meet people at their point of need with the gospel, they may respond. It can't hurt at least trying. Then finally, we have the priority of fulfilling our family role. And I was sort of doing that with my mom. Priority of fulfilling our family role. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul wrote this, For though I am slave from, free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those under the law as one under the law, so forth and so on. To the weak I became weak, so that I may win some. He, he, he took his role in whatever community he was a part of seriously. And he fulfilled that role. And he witnessed in the process. He became what people needed him to become without violating the scriptures in order to win them to Jesus. Everybody has a sphere of concern and a sphere of influence. A sphere of concern is that which you, is that which we have a concern over. Sphere of influence is that which we can exert some influence over. So we have, we may have a lot of concerns, but we can have no influence on them. But in our sphere of influence, we have influence over our concern and the people within that sphere. My dad passed away. I didn't know, I don't, I didn't know if he knew Jesus. I have hope, but I don't have assurance. He was coming to church. He listened to Bailey Graham. I witnessed to him, but I don't know for sure. And I'll find out when I go to heaven. 
So I made a commitment, not a vow, but a commitment. God says not to make vows, right? Make your yeses, yes, and your noes, no. So I made a, a yes to God. Yes, I am going to be the best son-in-law I can be to my wife's dad. His name is Will. All right, And Will's kind of a gruff man. People came to witness to him, and he said, he was yelled through the door, don't let him in. I don't want to talk to these guys. Faithful from my wife's church growing up. She was so embarrassed by that. All right. But he would allow me to witness to him once a year. I told him, once a year, Dad, I'm going to share about Jesus with you. He said, yeah, that's fine. So I, after my dad passed away, I decided I'm going to be the best possible son-in-law I could be. I planned family vacations for the whole clan. I learned to play cribbage because he liked to play cribbage. I said I wouldn't play poker anymore because that was my vice before Christ. I played penny-ante poker with he and his wife. She wasn't very good. I tried to break even every time I played with them. You know how hard that is to break even? All right. My mother-in-law passed away, and my father-in-law became very lonely. And he lived with us for a little while. On Thursday night when my wife had Bible study, I would cook. And I'd invite my father-in-law over, and his son was in a car accident, and he lived with us for 10 years because he was infirm in a wheelchair. So we, we redid our house, and her brother lived with us for 10 years until he passed. And he, he knew the Lord, my brother-in-law. So my father-in-law, after my mother-in-law passed away, had a planned trip the following year to go to Japan with her. So he still was going to go to Japan and take the oldest daughter with him in place of my mother-in-law. And my fear was, because I've seen this happen in ministry, sometime about a year after a wife passes, who's been together with her husband, the husband passes from grief and loneliness. I thought, I wonder if that's going to happen to Will. So I decided to step up my evangelism fervor by being a good son, son-in-law. So the night she was gone, and the, the weekend, that was the week before they were going on their trip. And we thought, he may pass away on this trip. That was my thought. So I said, okay, I, I cooked Thursday night dinner, as usual, and I made what he really liked, sashimi. A lot of preparation. You know what sashimi is? Raw fish. Okay. And I bought boysenberry pie from Marie Callender's. Do you have Marie Callender's in Texas? No. Okay. A pie place. Because he liked boysenberry pie with vanilla ice cream. So I made everything that he really liked. And I set the table, and my brother-in-law, my father-in-law, and I ate there. I was trying to be a good son-in-law. And that was the night I was going to witness to him for this that particular year. So... I, uh, after dinner was over, my brother-in-law was sitting there, and he was a believer, all right? I father was sitting across the table. I said, Dad, you want me to do your funeral, don't you? He goes, yes. I said, what am I going to say? What I'd like to say is that you've confessed Jesus, your sins are forgiven, and you're going to be with Mom and the rest of us for all eternity. That's what I'd like to say, but I can't. Because you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior and Lord yet. And he knew what the gospel was. We shared enough with him. So I said, Dad, tonight, before you go to Japan, would you like to accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord? And you know what he said? He said, yes. And once again, man of little faith, I said, you know what I'm asking you, right? So I said, okay, would you like to confess your faith now at this Thursday night dinner? He said, no, why don't we do it tomorrow night at the Bon Voyage party with the whole clan in front of them? 
that was so unlike my father-in-law. A typical Nisei guy, second generation. So I said, okay, tomorrow night. And then that night I prayed, Lord, don't let him perish tonight. Keep him alive 24 more hours, please, Lord. I actually crossed my mind. Next day arrived. We had our dinner. And they, you know, we gave them money, you know, buying boys money to my sister-in-law, who's the oldest child, and him. And just before everybody was going to go home, I said, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute. Dad wanted to do something in front of all of you. They said, well, and so they, they had this quizzical look on their face. They said, he'd like to accept Jesus as his Savior and Lord tonight in front of all of you. I mean, it was an incredible moment in time for the family. And right there and then, he confessed his faith in Jesus in front of the whole family. And that was so unlike my father-in-law. Sometimes we have incredible power just by fulfilling that which we're normally supposed to do as a, as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a, as a grandparent, as a friend, as a co-worker. Be the best that you can be. Dare to share the gospel, especially in a time such as this, where mortality the idea of mortality is so sensitive and, and raw in everyone's nerves and everyone's mind. You have the presence of the Holy Spirit. You have the proof of a positive witness. You have the power of God's Word. You have the potential of meeting a person at their point of need. And you have the priority of fulfilling a role that God has already given to you. Five resources at your disposal to share the good news of Jesus. And that may be one of the key remedies to a world grown cold and growing colder and more evil. And if that happens in the church family, the Zoe church community, God will bless this body so very much. You will expand not only in number, but also in influence. Influence for the sake of the gospel. Amen? And amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for this celebratory moment in a time of sadness for the community. And Father, we pray that you will turn this celebration into something positive for the community of Allen, Texas. Lord, we pray, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will help every person who is here today to grab hold of the vision of celebrating the seventh year of existence by going out and sharing about Jesus. Lord, there is power to be had that comes from someplace other than ourselves. Your Holy Spirit, the Word, the testimony, um, our, our roles and potential for roles would help us in each of these areas that we may be the aroma and fragrance of Jesus to a world that is perishing. Thank you for this. In the precious name of our Savior and Lord, Amen and amen.